The follow-up is simple. Ask a question, listen to the answer, then follow up. I'm your host, Noah Kozlov. Enjoy. The follow-up today is with Bob Ford, longtime sports writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And this is Bob making good on a promise because when I had Bob on a few months ago talking about Charles Barkley, at the end he said, well, let me know when you want me to come on and tell Pete Rose stories. So now Bob is back to tell Pete Rose stories. Bob, give me a Pete Rose story. You know, that was sort of just something I said to be nice, Noah. I didn't think you were actually going to follow up on that and, <laughs> and, and, call, and call back. Uh, but but since, since you have, uh, Pete Rose was one of the most interesting guys I ever covered for a number of different reasons. And I was extremely young. When I first went into the Phillies clubhouse, I was probably like 24 years old and very new on the beat. I was working for a suburban Philadelphia newspaper at that time. And he was sort of an awe-inspiring figure. I mean, this is, you got to remember, long before all of the uh, dating the 16-year-old stuff long before betting on baseball, long before being banned from being voted in the Hall of Fame, long before all of those things, he was just one of the most uh, intimidating, impressive baseball players that, that you would ever be around. And so it was, it was an eye-opening experience to me to walk into that clubhouse and to get to know him through interviews to find out that he was, he was just a fascinating guy to talk to. And one of the great things about at that time, and maybe still is the case, is that you didn't have to be, uh, you know, Brian Gumble, or you didn't have to be Bob Costas, or you didn't have to be some major media outlet for Pete to want to talk to you. And a lot of guys, that is the case. I mean, I was a twenty-nothing beat guy for a suburban paper, and if you sat down and talked baseball with Pete, he would sit and talk with you all day, and it was, it was something I enjoyed taking advantage of and uh, those conversations some of those lessons I learned just about baseball you don't get life lessons from Pete that's not a good idea but some of those lessons that I learned just about baseball I, I still I still reflect on today so he was 38 years old when he came to Philadelphia and that was in 1979 do you remember what the what the vibe was like when the Phillies signed him he's you know one of the one of the first true free agents yeah, and it was, uh, we see it a lot these days where teams look for that one guy who might put you over the top. And in Philadelphia, if you were going to make a comparison, you would say it was when the Sixers went out in the early 1980s and got Moses Malone. It was that one guy, that one free agent. Actually, I think Moses was a trade. But in any case, that one guy who you bring in who puts your team over the top. And the Phillies were really close. They were a really, really good team. They had been to the championship series, the National League Championship Series, a number of times in the, in the late uh, 70s. Couldn't get past the Dodgers, and, and this and that happened to them. But when Pete came in, he suddenly showed them how to win. I know that's a cliche, but it's accurate. And he was a leader, and uh, the city just went wild. And obviously it had been since 1915 since the Phillies were in the World Series. So when he took them back there in 1980, it was an amazing, amazing turnaround. What were the the types of stories that you now say uh, only Pete Rose? <laughs> well, one of the things uh, I'll just talk about just being around him as, from a repertorial standpoint. 
after a game, particularly after a day game when you had time to do this kind of stuff, he was wonderful at breaking down the strategy of a game and what the pitcher was thinking about in, at such and such an at-bat in such and such an inning and what the manager was thinking about as he was looking at how he was going to use his bullpen and how he might set up double switches. Uh, Pete was a manager long before he was a manager. He could see all those moves. And I remember specifically sitting at his locker after games, and he would have his game bat there. And he could look at the marks on, on the bat and say, this right here is that foul ball in the fourth inning. I was expecting fastball, but I was able to just get my bat on you know, the, the slider or whatever. Wow. And then the next pitch is when I got that base hit. And he could go on every mark on that bat and tell you what the pitch was and what happened on that pitch. And then after he did that, it just and this is he's relearning it too. He's saying, okay, I put that swing. Here's where it landed. You know, here's what the ball did. He would clean, he would take mineral oil or rubbing alcohol. I'm not sure exactly what the substance was and a rag, and he would clean off the bat till it was pristine for the next day. And then he could go through and replicate replicate that same process every day to look at every swing he took. And this is a guy who was not very fast. In fact, he was an average athlete at best. He uh, was just an, he made himself into a, just an okay fielder most places where he was able to play. But he was just such a high, you know, eye-to-hand contact guy. He very rarely swung a miss. That uh, he put the ball in play. And coming to Philadelphia from, from Cincinnati, where he'd had the same advantage, he hit a lot of sharp ground balls. And in those days, of course, we're talking about two astroturf fields. So even though he was slow, he got an awful lot of leg hits. You know, he was fortunate enough to, to be left-handed. So he could, uh, so he was four feet closer to first base, too, so he'd get a little, a few more of them. But uh, he was just the most remarkable great baseball player who was a lousy athlete, which I thought was, was, was crazy at the time. I still do. And you said that he never really cared who you were, that he would talk baseball with anybody. What was, what were some other characteristics of his personality? Well, he was incredibly uh, profane. He was extremely coarse. Uh, He used a lot of what I would call barnyard expressions. And, uh, I think it was just the way that, that he was raised. You know, he was raised uh, sort of in, in that in that regard, and uh, he uh, was probably not terribly involved in terms of his view of uh, women's rights. I would say, and uh, he was an awfully good teammate, though, whether you were black or Latin or. Uh, or, or whatever. He didn't really see that kind of stuff. He just saw ball players. Uh, they had a uh, first up named Yvonne de Jesus. I'm sure you remember him. Mm-hmm. And, and Pete called him Ivan. He, he would just call him Ivan. He just thought that was his name. That's how it looked to Pete. But, but he and uh, Yvonne de Jesus were extremely close. And, uh, you know, so all the, and Tony Perez came over at the same time Pete did to the Phillies for that uh, 1983 season when Perez came over also Joe Morgan, and those guys were unbelievably great uh, friends of each other and, and very close. But I can remember driving home from a game one day, and uh, there was this period of time where the only 
uh, unconnected uh, length of 95, I-95, from Maine to Florida, was this little piece of 95 near the Philadelphia airport, right after you came over the bridge from the ballpark from Veterans Stadium, and we're winding your way through Essington and Delaware County. And it was just this little stop and go of like five lights, and then there was you know a little ramp where you put it put it back on ninety five. And I remember, uh, and obviously it's been finished long, long years ago. But I remember driving home. I lived in that area, and Pete lived south of, of the town too. And I and I was sitting at a light, and and I hear the horn in the car next to me, and I looked over. And it was Pete in his Porsche with his with his wife Carol, and also leaving the game. And and he rolls he rolls down Carol's window, and I roll down my driver's side window. And he goes, "Who was the bleeping idiot who thought this was a good idea, huh?" <laughs> and it wasn't just that he wound up his window and drove. He was waiting for me to answer, you know, who I thought the bleeping idiot was. And but Pete, but Pete would have those kind of conversations. He would see him talking to the vendors, you know, outside the stadium. You would see him talking to the the uh, security guards. You would see him talking to just regular people who he didn't have to talk to, and most superstars would. So he was a very base individual, but he also did not uh, did not put himself above people. If I if I if I'm putting that the right way, mm-hmm. but he was a very earth, earthy guy, both in a positive uh, and and a negative sense. And he did some things that were just. Dreadful. Uh, I'll give you one example of this, and, and it's, it's awful. The Flyers had a goalie named Pelle Lindbergh who died in an automobile accident at early in the morning in the early 1980s when Pete was still in town. And Pelle had this incredibly supercharged Porsche, and he was he was a Swedish goalie, and he had gotten the car built in Europe, and it had specifications that were not allowed on the street in the United States. But for whatever reason, Pelé, to his ultimate um, you know, demise, had this thing that could go a zillion miles an hour and was very, very hot. It was an incredibly fast engine. And after Pelé, unfortunately, hit the wall uh, of a school building outside Summerdale, New Jersey, one morning and died a couple of days later, Pete inquired about buying the car so he could get that engine. What? That's absolutely true. That's an absolutely true story. Pete Pete made inquiries in, into Pelly's estate about, hey, I'd really like to buy the wreck of the car because I want to get that engine. That was that's some engine. And and the response was, I I don't. <laughs> Pete did not buy the engine. I Pete did not get did not get Pelly's engine. But it's one. But that but that's something that story. that's something that Pete Rose thought was okay. To ask clearly? that is entirely well. He probably wasn't going to use it anymore. That was entirely in character for Pete. Entirely in character. Did he get himself in much trouble for that kind of? You mean for that specific? Well, no, no, no. Just in general in Philadelphia. Uh, there was a little bit of a scandal with an amphetamine uh, thing that there, there was the the doctor for the Reading Phillies was a, apparently settling up. Uh, you know, greenies, and this was at a time where, you know, this was uh, rampant in in Major League Baseball, and a whole bunch of the Phillies were implicated as as was Pete. But people, uh, it was almost you know, we get back to Charles a little bit, and Charles was certainly a far far better individual than Pete Rose. But P- 
people would shrug and say, well, you know, that's Pete. And that, that's Pete. Pete. Pete would do anything at all costs to, to win a baseball game, would make himself a better baseball player. Pete used to say, I, I'd walk through hell in a gasoline suit to beat you. And he meant it. He would do anything. And uh, I'm sure it would have meant uh, quirking his bat if he thought he could get away with it or stealing signs or whatever, whatever would give him an edge. And as we know later in life, getting that edge did not serve him well, and, and he's paid the price for that for you know, 30 years now. Now, he left the year before Barkley got to Philadelphia with the Sixers. What do you think the town would have been like if they were both in it together? <laughs> uh, it would have been interesting. I think they would have been friends. Uh, I think uh, Charles would have recognized the competitor in, uh, in Pete. He would have also recognized another guy who didn't play defense very well. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that's a cheap line, but I'll use it anyway. Uh, I think they would have liked each other. And, but, yeah, uh, Pete went to Montreal, and then he obviously went back to uh, to Cincinnati. I was on hand for him breaking Usual's uh, National League hit record uh, with the Phillies. I was on hand for him breaking 4,000 with the uh, Expos in Montreal. And I was on hand when he uh, when he broke Cobb's record in, in, uh, in Cincinnati. So I was, I was really lucky to follow all those things. And... Uh, they were remarkable. It was, you know, you can't, especially at that point of Pete's career, the, the final one anyway, the Cobbler, you can't predict when you're going to get a couple hits. And so the, the Pete watch, you, know, you had to travel around with him, uh, went on for a, about a week and a half. And every day there would be a little press conference with Pete before the game. And Pete would just tell stories. And he would tell the most remarkable stories, none of which I'm afraid I'm going to be able to sum it up for you right now. But he, he knew the history of the game. He knew, you know, about when Al Capone used to come around and hang around the, the, the you know, Cubs and all that kind of stuff. And, and he, he just had wonderful, wonderful stories. And, but he could entertain like that on a moment's notice for a week and a half and never repeat any of the material. So he, was, he was a rock on tour in his own way. All right, Bob, what athlete is, uh, is going to be up next in our series? Well, you know what, Noah, you're going you're gonna to just have to call me in a couple of months, and I could, I could listen to the first podcast again, because there were like a hundred Charles stories I didn't get to. So maybe what we'll do is, uh, as the NBA season's coming around, and Charles is going to be in the, uh, on TV again a lot, and people are going to see him, another round of Charles stories, because those never get old. I don't think I told you the Japanese mattress company. <laughs> no, so, okay, so let's uh, let's end on that. In fact, in fact, I'm sure I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I. <laughs> oh boy, thank you, All right, Bob. Noah. My pleasure, anytime, and I don't mean anytime, by the way. The Charles Barkley Japanese mattress story. Of course, there's a Charles Barkley Japanese mattress story. If you have any other story subject requests for Bob, send him a tweet at Bob Ford Sports and me at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. And if you want to read A-plus sports writing coming out of the Ford household, follow Bob's wife, Bonnie, on Twitter and click on all of her links at Bonnie, that's B-O-N-N-I-E underscore D underscore Ford. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and when you leave a five-star rating and review, I'll read the review on an upcoming show. Is that an incentive? 
I don't know, but worth a shot. Thanks for taking the time to join us on The Follow-Up. The Follow-Up is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com. Thank you.